Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. My name is Luke Coppa. I am the managing editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we are doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. There you can read all of our latest reviews, listen to all of our latest podcasts, watch all of our latest videos, learn more about our Blister membership and Blister Plus membership programs, order our 2023-2024 Winter Fires Guide, sign up for our upcoming Blister Summit 2024, and a whole lot more. Oh, and a little teaser for all of our members and those who pre-ordered our latest Winter Buyer's Guide. You should keep an eye on both your actual mailbox and your email inbox. The guide shipped this week. Uh, Some people have already received their print copies. We just got ours uh, a day ago. And we will be sending you all an email about how to view the digital guide very, very soon. So keep an eye out for that. Now, today I am talking with Alex Lauber, who is the Senior Director of Materials, Innovation, and Sustainability at Outdoor Research. We brought on Alex to discuss one of the biggest topics currently in the apparel world, which are PFAS, aka per and polyfluorinated substances. In the outdoor apparel world, PFAS have been used for decades and decades, most notably in DWR, durable water repellent finishes, but that's going to be coming to an end in the very near future. So I sat down with Alex to go over why PFAS have been so prevalent in technical apparel for so long, how their use in clothing is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of their use across uh, a wide range of industries, their downsides and why we're seeing this recent push to completely eliminate them, the challenges presented by coming up with PFAS-free alternatives, how the shift affects the entire apparel supply chain, and how outdoor research has approached this transition and worked to stay ahead of the curve, and much more. This is a really good conversation that covers an often overlooked aspect of apparel that's now going to become a lot more important and impactful in the coming years. And Alex did a really great job of shedding light on what it all means for both manufacturers and consumers alike. Now, this episode of Gear 30 is presented by Open Snow. Open Snow is a one-stop shop for all the essential weather tools. I've used it for years because it's the most reliable tool I've found for snow forecasts during the winter. But with Open Snow, you can also view 10-day weather forecasts for any location on Earth. You can read expert local analysis from Open Snow's team of local forecasters, track active wildfires with perimeter, hotspot, and smoke forecast maps, avoid lightning with live and forecast radar, compare recent conditions and forecasts at your favorite locations, and much more especially up here in the mountains where most weather apps seem to never be able to accurately predict the variable weather throughout the year. Open Snow's pinpoint forecasting feature in particular has been a huge plus for me. On top of that, when you head over to opensnow.com, you can upgrade to all access status using the discount code BLISTER23 at checkout to save 50% off your first year. That's blister23 at opensnow.com and we'll also include a link in the show notes to this episode. And now let's get to my conversation with Outdoor Research's Alex Lauber. All right. Well, I am here with Alex Lauber from Outdoor Research, the Senior Director of Materials, Innovation and Sustainability. Like a very busy guy. And currently, we are talking uh, from very different parts of the world, but the main focus of this conversation is going to be 
something that has been getting a lot of attention in the past couple years and not only in the outdoor industry, but across a lot of different industries lately. And it's something that outdoor research uh, seems to have been uh, paying a lot of attention and thought and effort to of late and with some uh, ambitious goals uh, that you're currently working on. Uh, but the main topic is PFAS or PFAS, uh, these sort of mysterious chemicals that we're now hearing a lot about, but uh, I think a lot of people don't know a whole lot about and why there's this sudden shift to move away from them. So I'm really glad to have you on today to give us some background information, help fill in our listeners on why they should care about these things and what uh, the industry and outdoor research in particular are doing about it. Uh, but for starters, I think I'd like to rewind a little bit. And can you just tell us a bit about your backstory and your history in the outdoor industry in general and at outdoor research in particular? Yeah, thanks for having me, Luke. This is going to be a lot of fun. Um, I've been in the outdoor industry my entire career, uh, starting at, you know, right after school, working retail while I was in college, and then went to work for various outdoor brands, hunt fish for a good couple of years. And then made the switch to wholesale at Outdoor Research. I've been with OR now for almost almost eight years, I think in May. Uh, and I started at OR actually as the outerwear product manager. So very top of mind in terms of what we're going to talk about today. And DWRs, mem- membranes, you know, all the things that, that use PFAS. I say PFAS, PFOS, you know, whatever. Um, and then definitely I'm getting more involved on the industry side as well. So I'm also on the steering committee of the OIA's new clean materials and chemicals coalition i think it's chemicals and materials coalition ccmc so a little bit more active in the uh, in the broader industry as well in some of these same topics gotcha and in terms of your your current position materials innovation and yeah, sustainability it's kind of a lot. so yeah it seems like a very all encompassing role but maybe like day to day or over the course of the year are you primarily looking into new materials and um, say treatments or kind of looking at the current lineup or, or what are you kind of doing throughout the year for OR? Pretty heavy piece of what I do is the the materials, raw materials side of our supply chain. That's why I'm in China right now actually is, mm-hmm. is, is it with some mm-hmm. supply chain partners. Um, I lead our raw materials supply chain. So that also is... Um, you know, new materials, things that are innovative and interesting and new, but also some of the sort of basic stuff we do, you know, right. It's, it's relationship building and costing and negotiating. What's interesting about my role, I think lots of things, but what I think is really interesting and relevant here is I'm responsible for our raw materials supply chain. And I'm also responsible for sustainability at the brand. So I kind of don't have to have some of the friction that can happen sometimes in the push-pull between materials teams and sustainability. And a good chunk of sustainability work happens in the raw materials side of our process. You know, 90-some percent of the emissions of our company are done basically when that product leaves the factory. So the ability for me to sort of quickly pivot both sides of that line have really given, I think, outdoor research a pretty good advantage here in the last two years with some of these things happening that we were able to move pretty quick. So a lot of work is in that and and sustainability, our carbon footprint and climate goals have been a pretty big focus for the last six or eight months. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Like when you initially listed off the labels on your role, 
it does seem kind of expansive. And for some companies, those would be three different departments. But yeah, explaining it that way makes a lot of sense in terms of having those all those things like the materials themselves, innovating with new materials and having sustainability as a core part of it all in one kind of under one umbrella. Uh, I can definitely see how that would how that would streamline things. So in terms of the topic today, uh, PFAS, PFCs, well, first off, can you offer some clarity in terms of PFAS versus PFC? Um, PFC is a term that's a lot less used these days. Um, PFAS is per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, which actually includes PFCs. PFCs are the per fluoroalkyls. So really, it's not a term that's used very much anymore. Additionally, uh, PFAS can include other elements like oxygen, hydrogen, sulfur, etc., where PFCs are only fluorinated carbon atoms. Um, so they're generally also used in different industries. So I think it's one of those, you know, Velcro, Coca-Cola, and Kleenex kind of things where people label um, what's easy. We're trying really hard at Outdoor Research to not use the term PFCs because in some cases it's misleading. You know, one of the things I should say fairly early in this conversation uh, is I'm not an attorney, right? Like we're as an industry dealing with this PFAS legislation in legal senses. And so some of the stuff we're going to talk about today, I, I have to be careful how I say this because there are legal ramifications. That's not always common when we talk about, you know, outdoor textiles and stuff like that. There's never legal barriers for this. And this is kind of an interesting and unique mm -hmm. topic. Yeah, getting that clarity because I feel like if you, like we just went through the production of our winter buyer's guide, we're looking up like the specs for uh, close to, I think, 500 different products and website to website, you're seeing all different terminology these days. But I think the good news is, I mean, may, even if it is just required by law, we'll move towards some consistency. That's something that we're talking about actually at the industry level is that we should come up with a standard language for this so that everyone is using the same terms for the consumer because there's a lot of confusion out there, right? The legislation specifically talks about PFAS. So in most cases, the default for me and outdoor research has been, let's just align with the legislation. Don't, don't try to come up with terms and tricky marketing or, you know, things that sound less dangerous or whatever. It's like, no, let's just stick pretty close to what the law says. I'm glad we clarified that to start. So some people have probably heard these acronyms for the first time in just the past few years. Could you give us a bit of history in terms of how long these compounds have been in use and kind of their their origin story because it's it's i don't think it's as recent as some people might think no it's actually quite old you know pfas pfcs pfoa pfos those chemistries have been around for a long time i mean back into the you know mid 19th century um teflon most people know about the invention of teflon mm -hmm. remember when you could spray your jeans with teflon and spray your carpet and stuff like that um, fluorine and carbon is one of the strongest bonds elemental that known to man. And what it's really good at is actually being slick. Things have a hard time sticking to it. So it was used industrially and in lots of other industries, you know, the, around the world, it's been around for a long, long time. In fact, C8, and that's kind of a misnomer, but C8 was sort of eight carbon atom chain DWR or PFOA. That was, you know, made illegal when I was starting my career. 
we, we were phased out almost entirely of that stuff. And now we're in C6, which is the sixth carbon atom version of it. And then moving away from that to uh, what I don't like to say C0 because there's still carbon in it. So it's, it's kind of a misnomer, but a non-fluorinated DWR is what we're moving to now. But, you know, PFAS and PFOA have been around for a long time. Yeah, I think the, the Teflon, Teflon example is a very good one because, yeah, that seemed to be kind of the not only one of the first in terms of, yeah, a sort of water and stain resistant coating. It also like if you look back into the outdoor industry, that itself has uh, is kind of the origin of some um, laminates and membranes. But it's used everywhere. I mean, it's in ski walks. It's in, no, it's in Teflon cook pans. You know, it's in firefighting foams. It's actually one of the more harmful and specific vectors of human concern because it gets into the groundwater, right? Like we can get into the toxicity side of this stuff as well. But the other thing I tell people when, you know, they get all upset about their jackets, I'm like, look, I mean, there's not a lot of studies out there that your fluorinated DWR jacket is going to cause you irreparable harm. There really isn't a lot of that. Every time you go to Starbucks, every time you, well, I'm not trying to pick on Starbucks, by the way, I love Starbucks, but every time you buy a cup of coffee, maybe I should, you should cut that out, but I'm not picking on them. Or pizza, you know, you order a pizza, that piece of paper that they put in the pizza box literally is a sheet mm. with this stuff in it so that the pizza doesn't fall through the cardboard. So people get all up in arms about their, uh, about their, you know, fluorinated DWR jackets, but then they don't even know it's in stuff they literally eat out of, eat off of. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a very good point. And probably, I mean, once you think about it, it makes sense because while we love the outdoor industry, it's very large at this point. It keeps getting bigger every year. I don't imagine we'd be seeing this sort of attention being paid to it if it was, if PFAS were only showing up in waterproof hiking jackets or something like that. They are extensive. Um, and I think, yeah, the, the point about um, kind of some of the studies that have been done, and I think that's a big reason why we're talking about this uh, more and more these days. Could you tell us a bit? So like you, you mentioned the reason that these are so uh, widespread across many different industries is they are uh, very good at what they were designed to do. And in some, like in the case of outdoor apparel, repel water and oil, um, what are the main downsides and why we're seeing this uh, recent surge to move away from the existing options? Yeah, I mean, one of, the, one of the tricky things about PFAS chemicals industrially as well is it's in you know, seals, in automotive and aerospace and pipes. Your showerhead probably has plumber's tape, little white kind of thin tape. You know, that makes a, a seal between your shower head. I mean, that's literally a sheet of PFAS. So it's really good at being, you know, durable and in some cases elastic and repelling things. The downsides of PFAS in many ways, and I think that there's a lot of different parts and pieces to this, you know, in its raw or liquid form, especially when it's not inert or, or cured or dried, it's pretty toxic. And there's a, there is a lot of studies that have been done about um, how toxic this stuff is when it gets into the groundwater. So around military bases, airports, et cetera, where they've got firefighting foams that have PFAS in it. Um, it's pretty toxic in that sense, right? I, I want to say, don't, you know, don't quote me on this, even though we're, we're live on a podcast. I want to say the Aaron Brockovich thing, the chemical that she was specifically upset about in that movie, I think was PFAS in the groundwater back in the day, PFOA. So, um, you know, there's a big history of that. It is, it is harmful in that sense, but 
one of the things that I, you know, I want to say today as well that I, I'm going to be careful of making sure I don't offend anybody. The people who will benefit from removing PFAS in the outdoor industry in ski wax and DWR and membranes, et cetera, it's not the citizens of, of any state that has legislation for it. You know, in most cases, again, in your jacket, it's inert. It's super small percentages. It's not studied to be that harmful. Literally, mm-hmm. let's say it's Wednesday morning here. It's Tuesday there. My, my Monday, your Sunday. I was literally standing in a facility here in Shanghai watching them make membranes and applying DWR. And there's, you know, people standing inside these machines and these rooms for hours and hours and hours, literally standing over the raw chemicals being dumped in and and manufacturing this stuff. Those are the people who are actually going to benefit from this probably first in the outdoor industry. It's our supply chain. It's not the customers or the Mm -hmm. brands. So I think that's a really important thing to say. And what I do in managing raw material supply chains is like, I care about our partners. I care about the employees. I like to walk into those facilities and know that, you know, they're as safe as they can be. So I think that's a really important part of the human health concern that has to get recognized Mm -hmm. in our industry. That is a kind of an unspoken truth that I don't think the consumer fully realizes yet. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, especially because you, you grab a, say a waterproof, like a rain jacket, you, can't really tell that this sp- whatever type of durable water repellent finish has been applied to it. It's not something nope. you see. But if you happen to be in the industry and going to these factories, you definitely see it. And yeah, it makes sense. I think there's uh, a huge potential there. And we'll uh, I'll add in the show notes um, some links to the studies yeah. that have been done because this is still a relatively new kind of topic of interest for the industry. And like you said, there hasn't been much research done in terms of what are the effects from just wearing something that's treated with it. But uh, yeah, yeah, the application stage of the supply chain uh, is is huge in that regard. And uh, yeah, it'll be exciting to see, as we'll get to in a bit, uh, some of the alternatives. Yeah. But in terms of so this is gear gear 30 we're a outdoor industry focused podcast in terms of kind of products and maybe it's just apparel or products that people encounter on a regular basis if they're a hiker a skier trail runner mountain biker how how much of that is gonna have some sort of pfos treatment or uh is it is it basically everything or (laughs) a lot yeah, DWR is probably overused in our industry. You know, rain jackets mm-hmm. kind of needed to perform correctly. So almost every rain jacket, if not every, is treated with it. But a lot of, you know, uh, hiking pants, um, swimwear, ski wear, a lot of things like that are treated with, with DWR as either a, a, as a durable water repellency, um, you know, as, as a quick dry agent or as a stain repellent agent or et cetera. Swimwear in particular is, you know, quick, quick dry. Everyone loves their high spandex content stretch board shorts, well, they don't dry. They get saggy on you when you get wet. So they treat those with DWR so that they don't absorb as much water. So I think there's a lot of sort of um, reliance on chemistry in some cases to fix those problems versus using the right textiles or doing some of the innovative works. Um, the other thing I would say is in many cases, quite honestly, if, if you can pass a certain test method um, you can import products under an, an enhanced duty classification. It's a really complicated way to say if you can pass a certain test, you pay less tax when you import the goods. Um, one of the gotcha. ways we can do that sometimes is use DWR on a tightly woven fabric and we can get it to pass. So I think there's 
a fair bit of usage of DWR in some cases for financial reasons, not even performance reasons. That's going to have to change. That's going to be something that changes pretty dramatically. And maybe this is a good point for us to then segue to say, you know, how is this, how is the consumer going to see the difference? There will be a different performance level of your C0, if you want to say that, or just your, I like to say non-fluorinated DWRs. First and foremost, it loses almost all of its oleophobicity, which is oil repellency. So let's let's take a you know an extreme example that I think a lot of listeners and people would probably think of. You're on a you're on a chairlift, you're sitting on the chair, you're going up, and that chairlift is dripping kind of greasy water in the afternoons down on you. There's literally black grease in there. Like, you know, it's happened to me dozens of times. I'm sure it's happened to others. Mm-hmm. In the old days, you just kind of like brushed it off and said, oh, okay, no big deal, whatever. Every time that drop of oil hits your garment go forward, the DWR is going to contaminate. It's going to stop working as well, right? Like most people think that their waterproof garments are waterproof because the water beads on the surface. That's the durable water repellency. When in fact, all that's doing is trying to keep the face fabric drier so that you can move moisture through the membrane and make a breathable garment. So the, the trade-off there at some level is going to be actually not necessarily like I'm getting wet. It's actually going to be reduced breathability, which will lead to condensation. And then the feeling, that's one of the most common, like my jacket's leaking. Like, nah, it's probably not. It's condensation. It's not breathing. And that's going to be one of the struggles that we're going to deal with as an industry is that DWR, it's not going to work as well. And I think the customer fully doesn't understand that and is going to be, hey, what the heck happened to my outdoor research product? It doesn't work as well as it used to. Well, it's for regulatory reasons. It's good for the environment. It's good for the supply chains and human health. I mean, we're doing this for the right reasons. We have to. It's you know, it's law. But it is gonna, it is gonna be a different, um, it is gonna be a different performance level. Well, I want to loop back on the specific differences with the alternatives right. right now. But do you anticipate that as a result of that, are we gonna see a? increased focus on proper garment care? 1,000% yes. 1,000% yes. How many people listening to this podcast wash their rain jackets three or four times a year? The reality is you should. You actually should. And if you're having that wet out we talked about where the, the face fabric is not you know beating water as well, or you're getting some condensation on the inside, you don't have to do anything fancy. In some cases, you just have to care for the jacket, wash and, and care for it. Um, we're going to see a big, a big, big movement in the industry now to talk about care and you know, care and feeding is kind of always my joke of your garments these days. And outdoor research is really happy. It's public. We've partnered with Nick Wax at a brand level, one of the biggest sort of partnerships we've launched and they've launched. They're our you know, care partner of choice based in Seattle as well in the Pacific Northwest. And have, they've got great products that help you uh, revive and clean your, your waterproof garments or things with DWR. So, we're already moving down that pathway in the sense that we anticipated this as soon as we started learning about the, the regulatory changes of we're not only going to have to tell customers to, to care for their garments differently, we should give them a solution. Yeah. I mean, there's in the past when we were using kind of these more uh, resistant PFAS DWRs, uh, I think a lot, I mean, a lot of my friends are just like, well, it's still beating off water, so I shouldn't wash it. Cause I think there was also the, the, the fear yeah. of damaging, especially like multi-layer laminated, laminated, uh, waterproof fabrics. And it's taken me a very long time to convince any of them to, uh, uh, convince them that 
yeah, that will it actually helps. improve it if they do it if they do it right and follow the the related instructions. Some membranes are trickier than others. You know, there are a couple membranes out there mm-hmm. that you should care for very carefully. But in general, most rainware it benefits from a basic wash and dry. You just want to, you know, Nick mm-hmm. Wax would tell you, and I would I would argue I agree with them. You shouldn't use your your regular detergent. I think that's going to be the next mm-hmm. thing is people are going to go wait. I got to go buy a different you know soap or detergent to wash my jackets and garments. I'm like, well, yeah. You, your your rain your ski jacket has a very dramatic different performance than your blue jeans if you wash your blue jeans you know so yeah you need to go get something that has uh, the right formulation to clean it and then rinse out the problem with most you know tide or whatever is in a in a waterproof jacket there's surface area there's pores inside that membrane it's hard to wash that stuff out so and that's where Nick mm-hmm. Wax really shines is that they rinse very clean and you don't have to worry about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I th- I know we did a, a a gear 101 article I think now a few years back about it and I think we'll have to have to do an update in the near future this fall I think uh just to account for all the the different products out there. I think that's one of the most viewed posts on our blog is always how do I care for my road jacket yeah. and how do I care for my down jacket. Those are two of our best like most traffic mm-hmm. posts because people don't really understand that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's still despite both those basic technologies being around for decades now. Yeah, I think the end result will be uh, people enjoying their products more and hopefully using them for longer and just, yeah, having a better experience with them. In terms of the alternatives to these PFAS, uh, especially the water repellent coatings, what's kind of like, would you be able to give us a a sort of state of the union uh, in terms of the options that are uh, not not fluorinated, not PFAS, and kind of what the the main challenges and uh, issues you've encountered uh, while kind of figuring out what to do once we eliminate these from our supply chain. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the big brands and some of the brands who really uh, were focused on these kinds of issues had started to innovate with removing fluorine from DWR. Um, you know, 10 years ago. So they had started to kind of really explore this. And most of them at the time were like, hey, there's an oleophobicity problem, right? There's an oil resistance problem. So, you know, many brands were kind of like, ah, I don't know if I want to make the change. And, um, you know, we don't have to at this point. So let's keep innovating. Let's keep working on this. One of the other issues that was quite common during the early days of this is something called chalking. So, um, I'm trying to come up with an, an analogy here on the fly. I'm big on analogies, but essentially, you know, you're putting your DWR chemistry on your fabric. There is a there is a load factor of the amount of that chemistry that you put onto a fabric to get the desired results. And one of the ways we in the early days were trying to get a higher level of performance was to actually put more of the chemicals on the fabrics. Well, maybe you don't get it all rinsed out correctly, or the dye stuff doesn't get set correctly. The heat temperature and heat settings are different. You end up with this kind of like extra chemical in the fabric that if you run your fingernails or something down it, it almost looks like waxed canvas, right? It left lines, literally would leave lines or you would fold something and you'd have fold lines. In it. That's called chalking. But that was a huge issue. So I remember when I started talking to suppliers about this, I don't know, five years ago, we kind of still, you know, out of our product manager era for me at Outdoor Research. I was like, hey, what's going on? What do we got? Like, let's start working on this. And a lot of the suppliers were like, well, you know, it works better on poly doesn't polyester doesn't work as well on nylons you know it doesn't work with bigger fiber sizes or smaller fiber sizes so i think the first thing we had to learn from an alternative standpoint 
and I've had to have this conversation with the internal teams at OR is, hey, well, let's just pick one that works really well. And we'll just we'll just use it on everything. Well, it you know it doesn't work like that. Some of these chemicals work well with nylons, and some work better with polys. So you can't just pick one and say, well, just use this on everything. You know, you need to in many ways rely on your supply chain partners to to pick the chemistry that works better with the fabric that you're doing. A um, couple of the substrates that are out there right now is paraffin wax um, based sort of treatments. And that's a little more waxy in some cases. Uh, there's some that have like a palm oil derivative. That was a pretty promising one in the early days, except it was linked directly to deforestation in Southeast Asia. So there was, oh, wait, okay, slow down. Let's, you know, can we make a synthetic version of it or something? But then you have more chemistry. Um, I think that what we've now learned is that every maker, every major maker of DWR chemistry Almost all of them have some kind of a non-fluorinated option. So the, the belief at OR two or three years ago of like, well, let's just do a project and find the best one and we'll use that everywhere. We quickly were like, nah, that's not going to work. So instead, we started to say, okay, we got to get rid of PFAS. There's regulation coming. We, we anticipated some of that. We started working with our supply chain partners to say, what do you think we should use? What are, what are the options you have? And, and try to find some stuff. You know, a lot of these big chemistry uh, companies, you know, Huntsman, Diking, R3, they, they don't really give you the formula or tell you what that is in many cases. Um, so that's obviously one of the big alternatives in, in that case, but they still are, nobody has figured out the oleophobicity issue. You know, outdoor research makes a fair bit of product for the military and oil resistance is a big deal for them. So um, we are definitely paying attention. I think that we're going to see uh, a couple years here where the market is all going to, I don't want to say struggle, but everyone's going to kind of struggle with the performance and we're going to have to educate the customer. We're going to have to care and feed. What an unbelievable opportunity for innovation, right? Like that's one of the reasons I'm over here right now is I was working on some of this on, on Monday in that facility. So, um, I think in the future, the not too distant time horizon, we're going to see some really interesting innovations come out where people start to figure out new ways to make water repellency. But in many cases, the, the processing of those chemicals is going to be a challenge. One of the things that was so great about PFAS, and don't take that out of context, you could actually dump it right into your dye bath in many cases, and you could apply the DWR inside of another step you're doing to a lot of fabrics that are piece dyed. That's efficiency. And it's the, the slipperiness or the slickness of those chemicals, they wouldn't bond to the to the dye stuff in a way that would lead weird issues. It just kind of was one of those easy things the entire industry built off of. So if we want to come up with a new, you know, application for a new type of durable water repellency, it might actually mean the supply chain has to adapt. And that takes time and that costs money. Like it'd be different if all of a sudden we needed to use a different type of zipper pull or poly bag that a jacket goes into but we're talking about very early stages in a supply chain based on a system that has been long around time. as you mentioned for a very long time and i think uh yeah that uh that adaptation and the effects on the supply chain is uh should not be understated i think it's it's going to have a big impact on it but like you said, like on the other hand, since we have been running kind of business as usual with PFAS for so long, I do think there's a ton of potential room for innovation. And I, I, I expect to uh, hear a lot about uh, new alternatives in the coming years, especially 
as legislation becomes more common and companies, I mean, it's going to be, it might be rough, but they're, some of them are not going to have a choice. And so it's going to force it. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you want to sell anything in the state of California, go forward, you, you can't have PFAS. Like that's the, that's where the legislation is really mm-hmm. starting. One of the other struggles, Luke, that would be just interesting to note for people as well is that um, PFAS chemicals are known as forever chemicals. They don't break down naturally, you know, very quickly. They're persistent. Um, they bioaccumulate. So, you know, they, you can, you can probably test your blood and you've got some percentage of it in your blood. It's in, you know, like I said, every pizza you eat is got or through the early part of your life, you know, had a slice of PFAS underneath it or a sheet. So, um, one of the big issues we're dealing with with the, the regulatory side of this whole thing is like, dear supply chain partner. We're not going to use PFAS anymore. Oh, okay, great. We'll switch your chemicals. You know, don't worry about it. Well, I wish it was that easy. The, the legislation is going to require there to be, you know, guarantees. There's going to be test reports. It's forever chemicals. We've seen a significant amount of issues where we tested product that the supply chain partner said, yeah, we fixed it. Don't worry about it. Well, they didn't clean the dye tank. They didn't physically just didn't hose out the dye, the dye tank at a minimum. And there was trace elements of it in there. It's, you know, 50, 100 parts per million. That's really small. So the, the persistence of this is going to be a contamination issue that the outdoor industry is going to struggle to figure out for two or three years. The consumer is never going to see and frankly doesn't care about. But I think that highlights one of the, the real struggles of what we're trying to accomplish, again, for the environment, for human health, et cetera. Um, this, frankly, was what kept me up at night a couple of years ago when we got started on our mitigation efforts was we're not going to be able to make a wholesale change quickly. Because there's a lot of elements in the testing, in the science, in the contamination that we're going to need to deal with. So that was what was this, the impetus for me to go to our leadership and say, we should start working on this. I'm like, do we have to? So I, I think we should. Because if we don't, we're going to get caught behind the ball a little bit. And I think there's a lot of brands right now, candidly, who kind of didn't pay attention or didn't think it affected them as much, who are now realizing this is not easy. This is going to be a real complicated thing for the for the the market to address. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a it's a good point, especially like in certain cases, and as like greenwashing is a a more common factor when people are evaluating brands and products. Like, say you see like we're going to eliminate PFAS by twenty twenty or twenty thirty or like even 2025, if someone just like reads a strict, a quick definition of like, oh, it's a fabric treatment. Why can't they just change the treatment that they're applying to the fabric? Like, yeah, it is. Luke, that's what the, I, you know, I'm not trying to pick on the legislation, the legislators of California, but let's do it for a minute. Neither of us mm-hmm. live in California. That was, that was the yeah. legislators. You know, they chose way uh-huh. too quick of a time horizon for some of these things without really fully understanding how complicated it was. Like, I don't, I'm not going to argue whether we should or we shouldn't. I'm just not going to do it because the reality is it doesn't matter. We have to. But while we're talking about having to, let's talk about how we're going to do it. And I think that's where the regulators and some of the, some of the governments, the state governments who've done some of this haven't exactly paid attention or, or didn't care, quite honestly. And I think that that's, you know, fair again, I'm not a lawyer, but I think that they, Look at the change we've created, and they haven't had to really lift a finger in terms of what they did and how they plan to regulate this. But the outdoor industry is going to take time. One of the other things people don't know is where where are we right now? It's September. Where the heck am I? September nineteenth, twenty twenty three. I am now working on fall twenty 
five textiles. Like that's one of, one of the reasons it's something I was doing here. Um, outdoor research will be essentially PFAS free in spring 24. We're not buying any more materials made with PFAS. Um, Astracy in transparency. We had some leftover materials in our supply chain and we had some leftover finished goods that we're trying to sell through. Um, in fall 24, some major retailers like REI, and I applaud their leadership, they said, we're not buying anything with PFAS in fall 24. When the ban is actually January 1st of 2025. So you're like, wait a minute, mm-hmm. well, how does that work? Well, when do, you, when do you buy your new ski kit? You don't usually buy it in November or October. You buy it in January, February. So a January 1 ban basically is a good chunk of the ski sales of, of the year for a fall season. So January 1 of, of whatever year, it's 2025, essentially is a fall 24 ban. So everyone's like, well, I don't understand. Well, we have to start six months early because we have to sell through the goods. We had to work with the supply chain. We had to get rid of all the materials we owned overseas. There will be a very, very few products for fall 24 that we are buying with PFAS because there is no other alternative. You know, I don't even want to get into what's going on with WL Gore, with Gore-Tex. That's a huge part of this whole topic. And there's one piece in particular that we love. We love it. It's our hemisphere ski kit with the stretch, you know, CNET materials. We can, we're not going to buy, be able to buy that again. So we're going to make a couple more and we're not going to sell it in the States where we can't, but you know, we get one more shot at it. We're going to make a couple more. So there will be very few pieces we intentionally buy and produce in PFAS materials. But as of Jan 1, 2025, we will not make anything with PFAS unless it is a you know government military contracted that requires it. That's it. I mean, we're wholesale out. But that's the thing. It's 2023. And I was like, why are you freaking out about this and working all hours of the night? on this? Well, people don't realize we're two years out. Yeah. Yeah. You're living in the future most mm-hmm. of the time. Yeah. I, I like we usually only have to deal with two model year cycles. And then I have friends who I'll check in on them. They're like, oh, yeah, I'm working on 26, 27 right now. And I'm like, crazy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, it it certainly complicates things. Um, the topic of gore, if you're willing yeah. to, you can go into as little or as much detail as you want. I mean, one they they make great products. They are one of the most popular waterproof laminate manufacturers, probably in the world. Um, but I would say I don't know I don't know if I go popular, but I would say uh, consumer recognition for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. But they, I mean, we mentioned Teflon earlier. The original Gore-Tex membrane was uh, I don't know if I can still pronounce it. Expanded poly tetraethylene or something. Yeah, yeah, I missed the fluorine part. Yeah, yeah. So, do you have any thoughts on that? Like, I know they've already been doing yeah. some work in that regard, uh, coming up with new membranes. Um, but do you think we're going to see a significant shift in these, especially these third party laminates and membranes, or are they just kind of like in the same boat as you all and just kind of trying to figure this out on the go? I mean, they, they didn't get a significant amount. Well, I'm going to say this and then I'll qualify my statement. They didn't get a significant amount of additional heads up. This was coming than we did. So I think they were caught somewhat by surprise. Now, 
you know, WL Gore is a global company. They sell lots of laminates and products in other parts of the world. And I think in Europe, there was a fair bit of pressure on fluorine and C6, etc., that they were starting to address, right? So they had already come out and announced that some of their products were going to move to a non-fluorinated DWR. And, you know, we had a few in our product line for a while as well. Um, so they were experimenting with that. But one of the best debates right now in the industry is, is EPTFE a PFOS? Right? There's a fluorine in there. The reality, again, to me is, I guess I'm a little too practical or pragmatic at times. I don't care. Because guess what? I've already done the tests. EPTFE fails the total organic fluorine test, which is the California state mandated testing cycle. So whether uh-huh. or not it is or it gotcha. isn't, and by the way, we'll save that to say I'll qualify my statement. Um, it fails the test. So it doesn't matter whether it is or it isn't. I can't sell it according to the legislation, right? Mm-hmm. That said, the mm-hmm. qualification is they were working on EPE much um, further out in the horizons. And they're quick to also point out that the WL Gore suite of membranes and technologies is in everything in electronics and aviation and defense. I, I, one of the things that one of their sales leaders told me that always sticks in my head is anyone who's ever had a heart stent, you know, the little thing they put into your, they're made from, yeah. from PTFE. It is physically the FDA yeah. says you can implant this stuff in your body. So part of me is kind of like, Oh God, are we just, again, are we trying too hard? And, all of a sudden, just banning something wholesale without doing the homework. And like WL Gore is, is great. We're a Gore partner. So I'm happy to say that like we believe in WL Gore and sell a lot of WL Gore products. So yeah, that was a challenge. I think they got caught by surprise, as did many, that the switch was accelerated. And frankly, their transition to EPE, uh, expanded polyethylene from EPTFE, it had a couple snags. You know, I hope my sales reps not listening to me right now, but I would say they, they definitely struggled to fill it. So there's going to be a, a dip in supply for a little while with WL Gore across the industry. And again, some of the things that people don't always think about, why doesn't Gore, you know, they're coming out with stretch or why don't they have Gore Pro? Why can't I buy a Gore Pro shell for Alpine ice climbing or whatever? Well, EPE in its raw state doesn't stretch. So they can't make stretch textiles with EPE right now. And they can't they haven't found a way yet in the time horizons we had. And I want to be careful and make sure I say that. They haven't been able to achieve the performance specs of Gore Pro in their first gen of these planets. I think they're already on gen three or gen four. Mm-hmm. They're iterating and innovating very fast. But there are physical mm-hmm. categories of their business they're, they're not going to have for a year or so because of how quick they had to make these changes. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's- yeah. And I think, I, I think that makes sense, especially given that they obviously gore has come out with all sorts of varietals of membranes but there's been a pretty consistent core component to a lot of them in terms of the the chemical structure and so all of a sudden being told you have to completely change this yeah i i imagine that is quite the task yeah you know their thing is guaranteed to keep you dry and, you know, durable water protection. And, you know, they're known for some of the heart protection in the harshest environments, which is, which is great. Is that, you know, see with a C0 or non-fluorinated DWR and a different membrane that I think we brought to market a little faster than they probably would have wanted to in terms of like, let's do it as a wedge and we start and then we expand it. They had to just ramp it up as quick as they could. You got to imagine mm-hmm. they're nervous about their brand and, and their heritage and history. And, you know, I could share, I guess, that we talk about that with them. 
they are concerned about it, but they're also like, we're gore and we think, you know, we'll figure this out and the consumer, we have the consumer recognition. So they're working through this, but it, it is going to be a, uh, our VP of sales says jump ball over the next year, maybe two years of who innovates faster and who comes up with better solutions, right? Like we can keep talking about gore, but what we did on our side, which we're pretty excited about, um, this will, this has been teased and has been announced in sales meetings and stuff. It has not gone public yet. In fact, I think it will go public next month, but we, um, we will be launching a new DWR, uh, chemistry, a new technology first in the world in fall 24 in one of our new collections. I'm not going to go too far in this because I'm not sure it's my place to let it go early. Um, but we're working on press releases, et cetera. And what I will say is this. I said earlier that we are strategically partnered with Nick Wax. Let your uh, conclusions go from there in some sense, but we are very excited about it and it is going to be a really interesting thing. And I can't wait to talk to the customers and our dealers and everybody about it because I think it is an opportunity where we were presented with a chance to innovate and we fast-tracked it. I mean, again, that's one of the reasons I'm sitting in Shanghai is that I was here visiting that facility on Monday. So it's, it's going to be cool. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I'm well, one, I'm excited to learn more about that. And two, yeah, while we, well, it does require this big shakeup of the entire supply chain, it does open up yeah. a lot of opportunity for innovation and, um, who knows what we'll see in the next one to three to five to 15 years. Um, especially when we're changing an element that has been, relatively consistent for so long uh it's a it's a efficient way to uh force innovation if if you all of a sudden can't use that but innovation is also not you know forced you can't just say hey we need an innovation for next season it doesn't work like that so i think that there will be a gap for people who didn't start to innovate for sure yeah 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 i think it'll cert yeah there'll be leaders and followers and um it won't be as maybe as level of a playing field depending on when everyone's been working on this what they've been doing now the market's been the market's been pretty uh stable in terms of market share from brands and everything as well i think this could create an interesting opportunity to kind of again jump all reset some things and some brands Mm -hmm. yeah i like to think it's out to research we're we're a medium sized brand, right? We're not we're not huge. We think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for us. Looking forward, you had um you had mentioned some stats earlier in the conversation, but maybe give us an outline of specifically outdoor researches uh, approach to eliminating PFAS from their line. What what should we expect? in the next year and whatever you want to talk about following that in the future? Well, you're going to start to see some non-fluorinated products in spring 24 from us, right? So call it January, February of next year. We we definitely took a phased approach, which was kind of trying to evaluate risk and performance and say, where could we potentially make that change faster? So your trekking pants, you know, your hiking pants that needed it for duty-related reasons, arguing that. That was an easy place we could say, great, as long as we can test it, it still passes the, the test that's needed, et cetera. We don't lose any financial standings on those. Let's move those right now, right? That's easy. 
Um, some of our rainware had easier times with conversion versus others. So some of those started to change. Obviously, WL Gore or uh, Pertex is another one of our branded ingredient partners, a, a really important one. They started to make shifts in their product line to the level where it didn't matter if we wanted to, we, we had to. You know, so you're going to start to see those come in in spring 24. We're going to uh, already, we've, we've started a care and feeding program. There's a hang tag, I think, coming on all of our spring 24 rainware that says, you know, wash me. And then you flip it over to a QR code that takes you to a page that's not quite live yet on our website. It talks about some of this stuff. And Nick Wax in particular is highlighted and whatnot. So um, that's going to start to kick off kind of that consumer awareness campaign and uh, you know, we have an infinite guarantee. We have a great warranty in our products, so we take it pretty seriously. Is that there's a there's a financial incentive for us to make sure the consumer understands how to take care of their product. Uh, moving then into fall, you're going to see a lot of our rainwear and skiwear transition over to to PFAS free, you know, non fluorinated materials. It's really going to be pretty done in fall 24. Uh, that's when our new product I mentioned earlier will launch, but it's going to also be a huge story in spring 25, you know, after that ban. Uh, rainwear really sells better in spring than it does in fall. Fall is not the right time to bring it to market, but it, we have to because that's where we have a hole in our business and our product lines. We want, we want our customers to have you know, the, best, the best product. So we're going to bring it to market a little early, but it's going to be pretty much the major story of our brand in fall for spring mm-hmm. 25. Um, for sure, I mean, this is this is going to be what we're going to stand behind because we think it's a pretty great competitive advantage, and we've done a lot of R and D and work on this. Um, I don't know. I think you're going to see other brands start to bring it to market as quick as they can. Uh, I don't know specifically. I can't share anything publicly of what I've heard from some other you know contacts in the industry and my work with the OIA um, where other brands are. But there's an awful lot of dialogue right now in terms of how do we talk about this. Can you help me with this particular mm-hmm. problem? Does anybody know where I can find such and such? Uh, it's definitely something th- that is going to be top of mind for the brands for probably two years, three years. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm, um, I'm curious to see. I imagine we'll be hearing a whole lot more about it um, in the future and reading about different approaches and different solutions and different innovations. Um, so yeah, I guess we'll, I guess we'll see. I really appreciate the, this is a great overview of what is currently one of the biggest, I think topics, especially in the technical apparel or even just apparel, uh, segment of the outdoor industry. Um, but I think we could close out with, if there's any, Outside of this PFAS uh, innovation, any other, given that you are covering materials, innovation, and sustainability, uh, any other projects you've been working on or products you're releasing recently or soon or anything anything you're excited yeah. about in terms of what you've been working on recently? Well, this new thing that we're bringing out in fall, this new jacket, um, is honestly something that i am unbelievably proud of um the tagline mm-hmm. working tagline for this and i need to work on my sales meeting presentation actually while i'm over here traveling <laughs> it's going to be the most sustainable waterproof jacket we've ever made and we've got so many things to talk about with it in addition to a new dwr technology so first in the world um we're working really hard to understand sort of the sustainability elements of what we make and 
waterproof jackets tend to be one of the more impactful pieces of product that can be made. So we're, we're doing a lot to understand how to start addressing circularity, carbon reduction, um, supply chain resiliency, COVID, if COVID taught everybody nothing, you know, it's be good to your supply chain because one of these days you're going to need a favor. So as much as it's nerdy or dorky, that project has been very heavy in my uh, work in the last year or two and sort of personally managing a pretty good chunk of the development of that. So when we bring that to market and talk about the sustainability things we've done, you know, that's going to be really exciting for me. Uh, I, I think there's lots of new product that we're bringing to market. There's a new gore jacket coming. I honestly don't remember what season, but there's a new gore jacket coming that looks amazing. It's in the new EPE three layer product. So I think that's going to be something that we're really excited about for the consumers. Uh, we're working on a new bottoms program for men and women, a, a pant program that is, I think, a, a mature, maybe that's not the right word. It's an evolutionary thing for our brand and being a little more modern in terms of what travel pants, multi-sport pants can be and can look like. And um, it's it's really garnering a fair bit of excitement in the building at the moment. We've poured a lot of attention to our handwear, which is what we're known for. It's where our brand started. There's some new gloves coming out soon that where we kind of uh, streamlined the assortment and added some silhouettes to collections. Like our Aret glove is one that comes to mind. I think we're adding another model to that collection here in the near future. Those kinds of things for me are exciting because I think we're finally over the we have to do new stuff at a really high pace every season kind of churn. Mm -hmm. I think outdoor research is really settling into who we are and what we believe in and our consumer recognizes us. And I think it's going to mean we can do really cool things and fewer of them really cool. Which is pretty exciting mm -hmm. to uh, you know, a guy like me who tends to be on the, on the early end of the development of some of these things. If we can work on five things instead of 15, magic happens. All right. Well, I think we'll leave it at that for now. Uh, but I really appreciate all the info on kind of the the very broad level in terms of why PFAS are uh, such a big focus, not only in our outdoor industry, but uh, in almost every uh, industry. And what, especially what that transition actually entails, because I think that's something that is is not going to be easily understood by a lot of people. And I think it's uh, worthwhile to to get an understanding of uh, how exactly this fits into a already very complicated supply chain For sure. and why why these changes are happening, what we should kind of roughly expect in the future and what we should look forward to in the future, I think is also an, an exciting kind of spin on this as well so i appreciate the conversation and um yeah we'll have to do this again and get a another state of the union maybe on pfas but also all the other stuff that uh outdoor research is is up to yeah i would love to come back on this is my uh second blister gear review podcast it's always fun and i appreciate you having me today sweet thank you all right well now it is time for our weekly crashes and close calls segment now, admittedly, lately I've been doing a whole lot more typing on a keyboard than riding on a bike, 
but I've had a few friends recently take some pretty nasty spills on their bikes. And for whatever reason, this time of year seems to always be when I end up getting hurt the most on my bike. So I'm trying to keep that in mind and take it easy as we transition from biking to skiing this fall. But my friend's experiences reminded me of one of my own a few years ago at the end of October when I took one of the most consequential and gnarly crashes I have on two wheels. Now that day in October, I made a last minute decision to ride a different trail than I initially planned on riding. And the one we did ride is notorious for being pretty steep and very loose with rocks that never quite seem fully settled to the ground. Now, I'm not great in this sort of terrain regardless, and to add insult to the forthcoming injury, I also forgot to unlock my shock before dropping in. And sure enough, barely a minute into the descent, I tried to roll over a big rock, endoed into a field of talus, and I'm pretty sure I broke or bruised a couple of my ribs. Now, adrenaline fueled my way back home, but once I stopped moving, I knew something was uh, definitely, definitely wrong. Now, I said I was pretty sure I broke or bruised some ribs because I never went to a doctor and I never got an x-ray. And the only reason for that was the cost. At the time, I didn't have Blister Plus and after trying to be an internet doctor myself, I decided that the price of getting looked at by a real doctor wasn't worth it. Now, if that happened today, I'd have simply gone to a doctor without a second thought and gotten the care I needed. If I or any other Blister Plus member gets injured while biking, fishing, skiing, hiking, or any of the other dozens of activities covered by Blister Plus's injury insurance, we're covered for up to $25,000 per injury with zero deductible and no location or network restrictions. Now, of course, I hope to not need to use Blister Plus this fall, fingers crossed, but it sure is nice to have at least just a bit more peace of mind. As always, you can learn more about Blister Plus and sign up at any time over on our site and also via the link in the show notes to this episode. With that, I'll close out this episode of Gear 30. Thank you to Alex for the conversation. Thank you to Justin Bob for producing this episode. And thank you all for listening. As always, take good care of yourselves and everyone else. And we'll talk to you again next week. See ya.